Welcome to season three of the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. With the ongoing COVID-19 situation, we know that this is a challenging time for entrepreneurs. FreshBooks and I are here for you as a resource and community to give you the support you need. This season is all about how your business can survive and thrive in the new normal. We are grilling the best and brightest entrepreneurs to get you and your business through the next year. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur who is always looking to build community around my business. Today, we're talking to Jack Fan. He pioneered the matching algorithms and lead distribution platforms for online lead generation in the mid-90s and helped raise $27 million in venture capital for his first startup. Jack has spent time as VP of Strategy and Entrepreneur in Residence at Digital Trends, President and COO at Money Crashers, CTO of Aegist, and multiple media companies and publications. Fun fact, Jack is also an influencer with over 1.2 million followers covering tech, innovation, startups, space, and most recently, K-pop. Over the last 20 plus years, Jack has developed strategies to help businesses expand their reach, monetize content, innovate, and build teams through strong culture and core values. This is a challenging time for all businesses, especially when media and online marketing seem like the Wild West. But Jack is the kind of guy who rewrites the rules and carves his own path. And hopefully, he'll inspire you today to chart yours as well. Here's Jack on how he makes a living. I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm constantly looking at different things that I'm working on. And I've had multiple exits throughout my career. And so I have the luxury of being able to work on multiple things. I make a living now mentoring a lot of founders and startups. I do have a business called Fanzoo, which is helping newspaper publishers, local publishers, uh, monetize and, and keep their journalism alive. I also work as CTO for Aegist, which is a lifestyle publication for the 50 plus demographic. And I'm on the board of Dollar Four, a nonprofit organization helping people uh, eliminate medical debt. So wow. that's how I make a living these days. <laughs> and all in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> all in the middle of a pandemic. It's great because uh, I can work from home, which I used to, but uh, I can reach people all over the world. You have the longest resume, not because you've been in business the longest necessarily, but you've done a lot of things simultaneously and you've pivoted and you've learned from prior ventures and taken what you've learned into newer ventures. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are having to transition from one business to another or who are figuring out new ways to do old things may have this idea. What advice do you have about transitioning from one business to another, yeah. especially at this time? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, my entire life has been about changing trajectories more more than once. Uh, there's a, a great book by Laura Huang. She's a Harvard business uh, professor uh, called Edge. And the book is called Edge, Turning Adversity into an Advantage. And in the book, she talks a lot about trajectories. And we have a certain trajectory, two points of where we are and where we want to get to. And we, while we're working to get there, trajectories can change. And they often change. For me, it's something that has changed. I, mean, I went to school for medical, going to optometry, became a tech entrepreneur, uh, lead gen, and then a media executive and, and mentor, and now a nonprofit and K-pop, right? These are all things that my trajectory has changed 
throughout my life. But I've always taken things I've learned from the past to apply to the present. You know, to take my first business, which was uh, a business that I sold and eventually became Home Advisor. But we built that business, raised a bunch of money. And when we sold that company, we didn't make any money off of that. But I learned a lot from that business in the sense of, okay, here's what happens when you hand the keys over to somebody and say, okay, we're going to do what you say because you gave us the money. It changes your mindset a lot. But I took that, I built a second business from there, Bootstrap, without raising money and realized, okay, I'm not going to make the same mistakes. Uh, I'm also going to take advantage of innovation at that time, which was Google. Google started up. Uh, and so I said, okay, what are the newest technologies that are available? And Google was there saying, okay, you can buy keywords for certain terms. So my first business was based off of a directory. Second business was based off of buying keywords. So if you search for kitchen remodeling Portland, Oregon, or roofing contractor uh, Washington, D.C., we bought all those terms and we were able to achieve 75,000 leads a month coming in for people looking for home improvement projects. So that was me. And I, I knew nothing of lead gen. I, you know, I enjoy tech. I remember I went to school for medical. So this had nothing to do with, with what I was doing. But my trajectory changed. And from there, after I sold my business, I became a media executive for digital trends, helping to scale a media company, which was something I'd never done before. But the knowledge I gained was a new perspective that I could help those founders and, and what they built in that business. So trajectories change all the time. I'm always looking at where am I going and, and how am I going to get there? And then I look at what's available today. What are some innovative things that I hadn't thought about or things that are available to me that I should try? And, and oftentimes, trying those things can become failures, and they do. But those failures allow me to say, okay, that didn't work the way I wanted it to work. Let's try it this way or just change the trajectory based on what I've learned. Let's go back for a minute. Take me back in time to some of those pivot points. Like when you realized that optometry was not your life path, was it a gradual decision? Did you sort of tiptoe into entrepreneurship? Did you ever like intentionally say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur? <laughs> or was it something just evolved over time? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, my father uh, was an entrepreneur. My father, uh, after we came from Vietnam as immigrants in, you know, in 78, he said to himself that he was not going to rely on government handouts or uh, things that were just available. He was going to go make a living for himself. And here's a guy who was a high-ranking official in the Vietnam War. Here's a guy that uh, was a spy. Uh, you know, he had all these credentials that he had, but came to America, became a regular person and said, you know, I'm going to build a business. And so he did. He, a small upholstery business recovering furniture. Um, but he wanted the best for me and my sisters. And, and so we all went to the medical field. My sister is a registered nurse. Her husband's a pharmacist and all these careers in medical. So I was going in the medical field and I had a passion for it. I have passion for, you know, helping others and specifically in optometry. But that change for me was when I went to China, studied abroad, and I came back and I needed beer money. There was a startup that was just starting up. I came in as a telemarketer. I would call homeowners up and say, do you have a roof that you need replaced or windows or painting projects? It almost sounds like a startup to a joke. Is your refrigerator running? Exactly. That's, that's pretty much how I started. But what happened was when I talked about my grandfather would have been proud about that joke. <laughs> <It's your favorite laughs> but no, you really are trying to find people that actually need help with their home improvement and 
basically generate leads, right? Exactly. And so during that process, I thought the the method in which I was doing it was not the most uh, efficient. So I built a database and I did an auto dialer and I said, okay, I can probably call 10 times as many calls as these other folks who are just calling from paper lists. And so I built a system to do that. Wait, wait, wait. I, I need to know more about this. Why was it so inefficient before and what was the fix? Yeah. So the inefficiency was we had these paper lists of homeowners and we would just go through the list back in when telemarketing was still okay. We would just call them and say, hey, do you have a project that you need to have done? How old is your roof? Do you need landscaping, painting, whatever that is, handyman projects? It would all be done by paper. So we would go through, cross off the names or check off the names. And if it became a lead, then we would write down the names. And then we would take that and go find contractors on paper that we had signed up to match them to, right? All on paper. If this is all done on paper, it was just a matching service, basically. But I dabbled in technology. So I said, what if I imported this list rather than printing it out into a database? And then let the platform actually make the calls for me. And when it gets a connection, I can actually just talk to the homeowner then. And then when I get the information, I can input that information to the database. And then over time, I built a matching algorithm where I said, okay, based on this homeowner's address and zip code, I can match to these contractors who service that area. And this evolved. This is in the mid-90s when none of this stuff was available. There was no GPS uh, tracking or Google coordinates uh, that were available. We we disrupted the industry by changing the way that people found contractors, which was all classified ads and yellow pages. We took that online. I built a system. And from there, because it, I started automating this, we built a website. We started collecting uh, information online. That's when investors started coming and saying, wait, you have a business here. We'll give you some money. Let's grow this during the dot-com days. See, that's very interesting to me, Jack, because I feel like a lot of times people don't intend to have a business. They just do something that either they need or that someone else needs. Like I never intended to be an entrepreneur. I didn't intend to have a dating coaching business. I just was like, oh, I'm good at doing this. It helps people. I'll just start it. And then it grows and it grows and it grows. Is there any way that you could sort of train an entrepreneur to, to look at their business model and say, is this really a business or is this a tool or is this perhaps a hobby? That's Yeah, that's a great question as well. What I tell a lot of founders as, as I mentor uh, them through you know, different uh, you know, WeWork labs and whatnot is I tell them to f- identify why they want to be an entrepreneur first and foremost, right? Why what they're doing uh, is important. You know, you see enough of these trends where people are out there talking about become rich, right? You, an entrepreneur is about being rich and living this lifestyle and doing these things. For me, that's always been a result of being successful at being an entrepreneur. It's not the goal of being an entrepreneur. The goal of an entrepreneur should be to find a, a solution, to be innovative, to provide something that is helpful, useful for people. And that's where entrepreneurs, when you're focusing on that as your goal, you work harder and you're more passionate about making that goal successful. And if you're successful at that with the right modeling and, and, and revenue streams and whatnot, you'll make the money, right? But if you go at it saying, I want to make money, I want to be rich, and I'm just going to pick a random idea and try to get rich off of that, I think the the effort doesn't come through, right? And that's I think that's the biggest difference um, that I try to tell entrepreneurs. Find the why of why you you want this business to exist, why you want to be an entrepreneur. And then when you find success, you'll make that money. 
a lot of our listeners are finding themselves in a situation where they need to pivot. Maybe they were really successful in a local market, but now let's say it's an opportunity to reach a global market that they didn't necessarily see in their business plan before. You left one thing out of your bio. (laughs) I guess it's not how you make a living. So that's how you left it out. But you're also, you're kind of K-pop famous, right? (laughs) I am. I am. They call you once uncle, right? Hashtag once uncle. Correct. Can you just first just describe K-pop, but really like what is K-pop? Yeah, it's a great, great start there. K-pop, I mean, has been around for a while after the collapse of the economy in South Korea back in 1987. They actually made a uh, pact to to make the export of South Korea be culture, which is a fascinating thing. So they said, okay, we're going to make culture the export of South Korea, which will help uplift our brands such as Samsung, LG, Hyundai. You know, think about the brands that we hear today. And it is a result of the government kind of creating these things for cultural export. And that includes... K-dramas, which you now hear about. You hear about uh, food, all the Korean food that you love enjoying these days, and then K-pop. But K-pop is really a genre of music that is put together in a way that has a strong ability for a fan base to connect with the artists. And then they do all the heavy lifting. They do all the promotion. They do all the things that help the brands uh, for these bands really shine and you know from voting to polls to award shows all these things and so k-pop is kind of a culture in itself but we've seen selling out auditoriums for political events or taking over entire hashtag trends to wipe out white supremacy right they have an enormous power and that's what drew me to them but really i fell into the lap of k-pop because of my famous tweet back in september of last year okay tell us about that and how you got to be once uncle because you were not trying to be a k-pop icon you weren't jumping onto a hashtag right correct you were doing what any normal tech person would do and seeing what's trending on twitter and what was trending at that time and what did you expect to be trending i'm watching the apple event like i do every year seeing the latest apple products that are coming out and usually that takes over all of Twitter. I mean, all the trends are happening. It's the number one trending event in the world. But on this day for the Apple event, I was like, we're 15 minutes into the event and there's something that's trending ahead of it. And it's just Momo, the words Momo. And I'm like, what is Momo? So I tweeted out, I'm like, the Apple event's happening. Something's trending ahead of it. What is Momo? And boom, I mean, Tens of thousands of people were tweeting at me, responding, but in a very positive way. You don't know Momo. Momo is a girl group member of Twice. Today's her teaser. It just dropped, and we haven't seen her forehead in four years. No joke. (laughs) Not for weird reasons, because she had bangs, right? (laughs) She's always had bangs. So she changed her hair. So that's like Twitter newsworthy. It's Twitter newsworthy. So... I I was fascinated. I'm trying to piece everything together while I'm watching the Apple event. But now I'm distracted because people are sending me gifts. They're sending me music and they're sending me links to videos to learn about twice. So I'm now engaging and trying to figure out, okay, who is Momo, not what, and and why is she trending? And so when I found out, okay, she's a girl group, um, part of this uh, nation's girl group called Twice, you know, her forehead hadn't been seen and that created a lot of news. But my tweet helped amplify that even more. And so it kept trending throughout the Apple event, which was phenomenal. And so these fans were just the adoration from them. You know, this guy with a million followers on Twitter, a verified account that's now tweeting about 
Momo and Twice. And so they were just, you know, adored me. And they started calling me Uncle. And then once Uncle, once is the fan base to Twice. So Twice is the group, once is the fan base. And so they call me, hey, once Uncle or Uncle Once. Um, we love what you're doing. Keep it up. And you you already had a pretty robust social following. You weren't trying to chase a hashtag. Like a lot of times people will think, oh, I need to market my product or find my audience. So I'm just going to go into this hashtag and sort of take it over. You came at it from a different perspective. Absolutely. What they saw very quickly was an authentic me, you know, and if you've been following me enough on Twitter, you see that during different events or the launches of products, I talk about tech, I talk about, you know, what's happening, the innovation, but a lot of what I do are reactions and I share reactions to things as opposed to just, oh, here's the product or here's something you should check out. I share my reaction. And so I'm like, this is amazing. You know, what is this robot dog doing? I can't believe this phone has this many megapixels, but more of getting people to engage with me on a reaction and connecting with me for that. So this what is Momo was really just me saying, what is Momo and why is it trending so much? I'm not trying to jump on hashtag trends to just be a part of it. I'm actually reacting to things that happen to be trending, um, but they were my true reactions to things. This is the first big aha moment of season three. I hear so many times from entrepreneurs that they don't like Twitter because it feels like they're just shouting into an empty void and not getting any responses. As Jack just explained, the point of building your brand through social media isn't to badger people with your content and products. It's to build real human connection with groups of people that you otherwise wouldn't have come into contact with. So let's extrapolate this out for the entrepreneurs who are listening and are having to figure out how to build a brand in social media. Because I think this is a really different approach, Jack, than a lot of other social media experts would tell you. And it also, I'm just speaking from the point of view of the entrepreneur right now, I'm thinking, gosh, this feels like a really big lift to do all of that hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) I call it like the one-to-one engagement is the juice worth the squeeze? So that's a great question. You know, I spent my time at Digital Trends helping to grow that audience uh, with the team I had. And we found a big difference when people engaged with others and the brand loyalty, the equity that you build from that uh, goes a long ways. And so what I've found is when you're building uh, equity through brand loyalty, that person then feels a connection to you. So if you if people ask the question or they react a certain way and you react to them, you build this connection where this suddenly they're like, oh, there's somebody on the other end of this Twitter handle, right? As a brand, you know, you see a lot of brands out there just saying, here's our latest products. Here's our latest service. Here's all the things that we have. Uh, where you turn that around and it's like, this is where this product can really change your life. Why it exists as a product. Why it's making a change in people's lives. And taking that approach where you are sharing reactions or how people are influenced or impacted by uh, these products or services, it changes. And so when I engage with K-pop fans, I'm building a lot of brand equity and brand loyalty for myself, which then helps out other businesses and things I'm working on, including, you know, attending NASA social events or Adobe Summit or talking about different sponsors that I might be working with from work at home. So it helps because people then connect with me and they believe in the things that I talk about as well as the things that I, I care about. And it seems that you're also coming at it from a lot of different content angles. And I know you also have a company called Fanzu, which is basically marketing for digital publishers. And 
there are a lot of people out there making content, content, content. We're making some right now. <laughs> but with the K-pop engagement, you're not just tweeting, retweeting the same stuff. You've done piano covers. You play piano. When do you have time to play piano, Jack? <laughs> you're doing unboxing videos. You're really looking at different ways to say the same thing. Yeah. So I, I'm responding to the fans, right? I'm responding to what they enjoy, knowing what they watch, what they like to absorb as far as content. And so I create that content. Um, it, it's it's true, genuine me creating content to share, to help amplify the idols. I can say our idols now because I'm a stan uh, of twice, but in, enjoy these things. So I give them what they want to see and what they want to hear, in, but not to glorify myself, but really to allow for the idols to really shine. And so they they enjoy that. And it's real, it's authentic. And I think that it just connects to the fans in a much, much different way. And then it builds loyalty to me because I can talk about other products and services and they will have interest in it if it relates to them. I'm sure there are plenty of listeners right now who understand and regularly engage with social media, but in the event that this conversation is new to you, let's start with defining the word Stan. When you call yourself a stan, it means you're a super fan. Like in the Eminem song, Stan, but kind of less depressing. Anyway, if you're new to Twitter, Jack is proof that you can be relevant on social media no matter what age you are and no matter what you're passionate about, even if it's K-pop. I know a lot of our listeners right now are saying, I understand K-pop. I get what he's saying. I'm down with social media. I... I feel comfortable on all of these platforms. And there might be some other folks that are like, this is all new to me. You know, maybe they're over 40 or over 50. And a lot of this tech isn't something that they grew up with. And marketing over social media doesn't come naturally to them. You also are the chief tech officer of Aegist. What do you feel like older entrepreneurs could stand to learn from your experiences? I think... A lot of people are finding a strong connection to Gen Z, for example, right now. The older generation is seeing a strong connection to Gen Z uh, because there is this feeling that the younger generation nowadays will call BS on things, right? They will look at things and they're like, no, you can't really say that. That's not true. But they're very, very active on social media. They're very active in social activism as well. And you see that. And so... The older generation, I'm going to take out the millennials in the middle here, but the older generation is a very hardworking generation, right? And so you have the boomers and then Gen X is me who have, you know, approached uh, life in, in a different way. And millennials kind of came in and had a lot of impact and change in the world, but really focusing on what's next for me. And I, I don't want a blanket statement that, but it is part of how it is perceived among different generations. Gen Z comes in and says, we want to make this world a better place. We want to be able to, to do things that have an impact on the world and has a broader uh, result for the future. It's a much different viewpoint. And so because of that, the older generations have a connection to that. And I also find that when the older generations start to speak the language of the younger generation, start connecting into what they know, TikTok and Instagram or stories or dance trends or whatever that is, K-pop. Reels. I, help me. I don't uh, help. <laughs> yes. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm out here doing things that people are like, well, how do you know about those things? And that's because I actually spend time to understand the younger generation. Uh, and when you do that, 
you start to learn things as they learn it. And it's not about trying to do things the old ways. Seriously, though, how do you stay on top of the trends like that? Well, I have two daughters, <laughs> 16 <laughs> and 12. They are Gen Z. So when I tweeted the other day, I said they're going to be the most important generation of our lifetime. I mean that. And then, you know, as a father of two daughters, they're constantly doing things. Now, they're not into K-pop as much as I am, but they are on trends. And my older daughter does a lot of different things. My younger daughter does a lot of different things. But my mind has always been around innovation. And as an entrepreneur, you know, one of the things I like to say is look for new ways of doing old things, right? That's the entrepreneurial mind is, you know, how do we create something that can be a better way of doing something or a better product than what was done in the past? So my mind is constantly looking for new things. And when I see new things, I learn as much as possible about the new things and look at ways that it can be improved or look at ways that it can be used to better our lives. I'm constantly fidgeting and playing with things and seeing this works, this doesn't work, but it keeps me up to date because I, I love connecting with the younger generation. I'm on TikTok. I'm doing dance covers. I'm doing piano covers. It's it's just so much fun. And then you, you're like Robin Hood. Now you're taking the money and you're taking that knowledge and you're you're also giving it to nonprofits. So you're also the board member at Dollar Four. Tell us a little bit about that and why you think, among all the other things that you do, it's an important element of your entrepreneurship portfolio. Yeah, so I spent time as president over at Money Crashers. Actually, I talked to a lot of the folks from uh, the I Make a Living uh, FreshBooks team at a lot of FinCon events in the past. But while I was at president at Money Crashers, the goal there was to help people become more financial literate helping to um, understand what was available to them, the content-wise, how to save, how to get rid of debt, all these different things. Dollar Four was started several years ago by uh, the founders who had medical debt. And he found a way to eliminate that medical debt legally with help from the hospitals and a thing called the Charity Care Act. And so once he was able to achieve that for himself, he went out and started helping other families who qualify based on income levels to say the hospitals are required to write off or forgive this debt because you fall within the threshold of uh, income requirements. And he realized that there was nobody out there sharing this information. The hospitals, which are required to do this, they don't talk about it. Obviously, it's not in their interest to tell someone who owes the money that, oh, we can write this off for you. They'll say, oh, here's a payment plan that you can go on and, and you know we'll keep you out of collections, right? They're trying to get that money. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so what he found was, well, there's actually a lot of people that don't know this exists. And so he started this foundation. He started this charity nonprofit. And he's been helping a lot of families to find out if they qualify. And if they qualify, he has volunteers as well as uh, attorneys on our pro bono to help out to write letters to the hospitals and say, you know, based on the information we've gathered, this patient debt should be uh, forgiven. And so he started that. Later on, I came on board with Dollar Four because I, I loved what he was doing. I was just like, this is really amazing. But he was not a tech entrepreneur. He wasn't you know, very savvy in a lot of different areas. And I said, how can we amplify what you're doing and give you the resources as if you were a big organization? And so with that, I started to look at what he was doing and found out there's a strong connection to these people who have this need. And then there's another side of it, which are people who are willing to help, who who can you know, give a cup of coffee a month, right? $5 a month, which can go towards helping other families uh, eliminate debt. And so Dollar Four was created for that. And what I'm doing now is helping to amplify 
the knowledge around what's available. If you have medical debt and you qualify within, you know, 300% of the poverty level, in some cases, it's like 600% in New York City of the poverty level. We're talking about people who earn $37,000 or less for an individual or, you know, $70,000, $80,000 or $100,000 as a family can have this debt completely forgiven by these hospitals. I mean, the debt can be as small as $12. That's important. And I'm hearing, you know, a lot with COVID as well. People are leaving with bills that they didn't necessarily expect. You know, even if you recover from COVID, you might be facing another mountain to climb. You know, there's a lot of talk in entrepreneurship about doing well by doing good. Do you have a philosophy about how entrepreneurs should be giving back with their profits or building in some sort of a charity angle to their business? Absolutely. I think it's important for us to recognize that when we are successful at what we're doing as entrepreneurs, as business leaders, that, you know, we are very fortunate. We're very blessed. Now, there are different ways that we can be giving back, including, you know, knowledge and and, and resources, mentoring. Uh, But the financial side is is also very important because you you hear a lot about, you know, these billionaires continue to make more billions, right? And being able to give back is to show that, yes, I have been successful, But with that success, I want to make sure that others can achieve success. Others can have an opportunity to thrive. And so there are a lot of charities out there that have a lot of needs. Um, And if you build that into your business, now you're working towards making your business successful, but also towards the more successful your business can be, the more that you are able to give back and and improve the lives of others. And so that becomes a passion for me, right? That's something that I'm passionate about, which is helping others. And so all my businesses I'm a part of is about making sure that I can be as successful as I can for the business, for the people and the jobs I create, but also for the charities I'm a part of. So I, I can give back more. Mm, I love that. And it's clear in all that you do, Jack, that you really care about people and making people's lives better. I know this is a challenging time for so many people around the world with COVID keeping us isolated and I'm an extrovert in case you can't tell, but you know, even for introverts, a lot of people are feeling really isolated and these business challenges can be so huge and it's hard to navigate that when you're feeling all alone. So you've been feeling that yourself, even though you have a family at home, you've been feeling isolated, missing events. So you came up with a challenge I heard. What is the Jack Fan challenge? Yeah. You know, it's about two months now. So I'm used to going to conferences and events, right? And and uh, interestingly, I'm actually, I just took the test and changed from introvert to extrovert. Amazingly, I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> I've always been borderline. I mean, I'm omnivert. I've been borderline introverted, extroverted. But every test I've taken up until earlier this year has been introvert. And, and you know, I enjoy my quiet time. But, you know, the introvert in me allows me to go out and still meet people, but do so in a way where I'm gaining knowledge from people. And so all these events, I would go to FinCon or uh, Social Media Marketing World or any of these conferences, events. In between sessions, I love meeting people. I love just hearing their stories, what they're doing, and then trying to build a connection so that if there's something they need, I could help them with or they could probably help me with something. There's an opportunity there. I'm used to that. I've been doing that my entire life, my entire career, actually, I should say. And so as an introvert doing that, which was very fascinating, but I started this challenge and said, you know what? I can't go to conferences. I can't meet people right now, but I have a million followers on Twitter. How many of these people do I actually know, right? We've exchanged tweets, but 
wouldn't it be cool to just have a one-on-one meeting with these people? And so I, I tweeted out and I didn't really think too much about it. I said, okay, I'd love to do this challenge. Let's meet 100 people in 100 days. And I want to meet people all over the world. So I made a calendar available, made some time slots available and said, you know, book your time on it. In a matter of like less than two hours, like an hour and a half, all positions were filled up. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And so I actually ended up opening up uh, some more time slots. But what happened was I would, there would be people all over the world of all types of backgrounds. I had professors in Germany in machine learning and AI who leads research institute. I've had a lot of K-pop fans uh, in the Philippines and South Korea and Japan. Uh, I've had a lot of entrepreneurs who came from Sweden, from Uruguay, from Brazil, all over the world. I mean, there's only 200 countries in the world, around roughly, right? And I've already spoken with uh, 80 people across 45 different countries. And it's just been an experience where what it's done for me is opened up an opportunity to just engage with people on a one-on-one level. But what the response I've received has just been amazing, where people are like, you're not just some guy on the internet that I can tweet with or engage with. You are actually someone I can connect with. And I've had amazing questions about entrepreneurship. How to become an entrepreneur? How do I engage with things? What is marketing? What is my favorite bias in twice, right? All these things, but it's of a wide variety. And it's just so great to connect with people all over the world, gain their perspective, and just have a great conversation. To close out our episodes this season, we're looking to hear the last piece of advice that our guests either gave or received. Here's what Jack had to say on that. I don't want to sound too repetitive, but a lot of my conversations I've been having on the Jack Fan Challenge, people have been asking me, how do I become an entrepreneur? And so my advice to them is always find what you're passionate about and find a solution to things that people haven't found yet or make something that people have found a solution to, but make it better. And that's, you know, I I hate sounding repetitive, but find new ways of doing old things is something that I think people just need to really take a look at if they want to become an entrepreneur. And so that's the best advice I continue to give over and over again. I think sometimes we do too much right? We think we need to reinvent the wheel. And it's like, nah, you just use the same wheel, just build it better. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Jack. That was awesome. As a dating coach, it's my job to help people find love and human connection. This interview resonated for me because we're living through an unprecedented and disconnected time. Like Jack said, The key to successful growth during this pandemic is doing what you love and finding a way to connect your passion with other people around you. Here are the other big takeaways from this episode. Keep learning. Today's personal development could be tomorrow's million-dollar idea. If you're not sure entrepreneurship is right for you, ask yourself this. What is your goal? Is it something that you're passionate about and see yourself growing with in the future? If not, maybe it's just a distraction at this challenging time. Find your community, not just for your brand, but for yourself during this time of isolation. And speaking of connection, 
don't forget to join our Facebook community page at facebook.com slash groups slash I make a living or search the hashtag I make a living on Facebook to find us. There are a ton of resources there for your business, but most importantly, the FreshBooks fam is here for you if you need a shoulder to lean on. We hope to see you there. The best way to reach Jack is through Twitter at JackFan, that's P-H-A-N. And the thing that he's passionate about right now is dollar four. That's spelled D-O-L-L-A-R-F-O-R so that families in your community struggling with medical debt can get the help that they need. You can find them at dollar4.com. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. We have so many tools to help you financially during this challenging time. Check out the exclusive offer for our podcast listeners only at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our associate producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Producing and direction comes from Paco Arizmendi. And I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. You can connect with me at Demona Hoffman on any social media platform or at DemonaHoffman.com. And remember to keep building your community because it's your business. See you next week.